Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the wonderful uh, expression of your character and glory that we look at, that we celebrate, that we enter into today. We pray that as we reflect on your scriptures that you might enliven us and encourage us and bless us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Trinity Sunday when we celebrate that God has revealed himself in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I think it's actually a fitting way to um, cap off the first part of the liturgical year. We started it back in Advent, and we've gone through Easter and Pentecost, and it, 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 we've seen the glory of the Father expressed and revealed through the Son by the Spirit. And then just last Sunday, we had the pouring out of the Spirit. And so now we come to Trinity, where we sort of summarize all that and said, yes, the glory of God is revealed through all three of these persons working in our world for our salvation. But the Trinity is not just some obscure part of our faith, and it's incredibly personal. Because the Trinity reveals that God is love. You see, if God was a solitary being from all eternity, then he could not be love. He wouldn't have anyone else to love until he created us, and then he would be dependent on us in order to be what he is, and he wouldn't be God. You understand? The very nature of God being love reveals that God must be Trinity. And so there's a lot of other versions of God out there, but they cannot be love because they are not Trinity. From all eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have been delighting in each other's love and company and presence and beauty. But then something extraordinary happened. This God who had chosen to create us in order to share in that glory as image bearers of God, we broke that, we know that story, but then later he actually entered into the story in flesh through the person of Jesus Christ that we might be redeemed, that we might get to enjoy him forever, that we might sit down at the table of God and enjoy his fellowship eternally. You see on the screen behind me, Rublev's icon. It is often used as a pictorial way to understand the Trinity and the fellowship that we are being invited into. There's a table, and it's open to us to come and sit down and to dine with them. The Trinity is not just a doctrine, it speaks about our destination. In our gospel reading for today, Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples to go make disciples of all nations. And one of the ways that they do that is to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, it's easy to read that, and especially as a liturgical tradition, it's easy to read that as sort of, well, let's just do the water ritual. Let's say the the right words. But we need to remember there's something much deeper and more profound behind Jesus' words. And baptism is that outward and visible expression of that inward and spiritual reality that is taking place. That when we baptize someone, we're bringing them into a different reality. Which one? The life, the character, the glory of the Trinity. 
think that's what Jesus means by the name of, the character of, the personhood of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, not just words. We're talking about a deeper reality. So a disciple is someone who has been brought into, who has been immersed into the life of the Trinity. That is their new location. That is where their life is truly found. If you look back a couple of Sundays, we were in Colossians 3, where Paul reveals to us that we have died and we have risen with Christ, and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God. That's where we are, in God, in the Trinity. So maybe you came here today and said, Trinity, and your thoughts were weird, boring, mysterious doctrine. I hope that you can change your mind. And that when you hear that word, that you can think life and joy and love and eternal pleasure. Not a boring doctrine, hard to understand. Because enjoying the Trinity, friends, is the end goal of our salvation. It's what we were saved for. Our hearts should leap. Our mouths should praise and give thanks when we think of this wonderful reality. This morning, and for the next couple of Sundays, we're going to look at a text from Romans chapter 5. It's a Trinitarian text because each person of the Trinity is referenced. But in particular, it shows us the how we get in. How is it that we get to enjoy the life of the Trinity and have salvation? So it shows us the how right in the beginning, and then it shows us the blessings that we enjoy even in this life and eternally when we do get in in the life of the Trinity. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Romans 5. And I want to look at the first part of verse 1. Romans 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. That little phrase, justified by faith, that's Paul's answer for how it is that we get in on the life of the Trinity, on salvation, on eternal joy, on heaven, on all of it. To be justified by faith, just a simple answer, simple definition, is to be made right with God. Paul will then go on and talk about, in verses, the rest of verse 1, 2, and 3 and following, he'll talk about the blessings of that justification. Since we've been justified, therefore, since we've been justified, and then he goes on and talks about peace with God and the standing and grace and these other things. And then later he'll talk about God's love. And he'll talk about the subjective part of that, of experiencing the love of God through the Holy Spirit who's been poured into our hearts. And then he'll go on and talk about the objective part, the, the, the historical reality of the Son dying on behalf of us while we were yet sinners. That's just the first half of Romans 5. It's a wonderful chapter. And we're going to take uh, three Sundays to look at 10 verses or so, the first 10 or 11 verses. But today... We need to start with justification by faith. Because Paul, when he says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, he's summarizing and referencing what he's been talking about for four chapters in Romans. And so we need to go back and look at those, understand that, and then we can go forward. So Paul begins in Romans in chapter 1 by explaining the need for justification. People then, as now, didn't see that there was a Massive problem that separated them from God. Simply put, they were not right with God. Apart from Christ, we are not right with God. 
And it would keep them and us from enjoying eternal fellowship with God, the reason for which we were created. And so before telling them the good news of justification by faith, Paul's got to start with the bad news. Good news just isn't good to people who haven't come to grips with the bad news, right? People living in the time of Noah didn't believe that there was a massive flood coming that was going to destroy them and and their world. And so the ark didn't seem like good news. It seemed like ridiculous waste of time. And they mocked Noah as such. But if you knew a flood was coming, if you had full awareness of the precarious situation that you were in, then the ark would be mighty good news, would it not? And that's very true spiritually as well. Those who are ignorant of the fact that they are perishing the cross, the gospel, foolishness. Not just unnecessary, foolishness. But to those who are aware, it's an ark. It's salvation, it's deliverance. So Paul is going to try to make people aware of the problem. And in typical Pauline style, he doesn't mince words. So after some introductions in Romans 1 verse 18, he jumps right into the heart of the matter. He writes this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What a warm way to begin the letter. So not only are human beings ungodly and unrighteous, but he tells us in that state we have suppressed the truth so that we have become ignorant of our precarious position. And so Paul is issuing a wake-up call. He's telling human beings that we have a problem. Things are not okay. We are in a relationship of enmity and rebellion with the creator God. And if something is not done, his posture, his relationship to us, even though he does love everyone, his approach to us is wrath. And we will not get to enjoy the love and life of the Trinity forever. Instead, we will be banished from his presence forever. And these words should shock anyone into a state of alertness. A flood is coming. What shall we do? And Paul goes on in chapters 2 and 3. And he's going to address a potential objection, a roadblock to people really understanding their state. And it has to do with religion. Religion is often the thing that gets in the way of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to a mixed group, Jews and Gentiles. And he knows, as a Jew himself, that some of the Jewish believers and other people in that audience might think, well, yeah, that's fine for the Gentiles. We know that they're going to hell in a handbasket. But we Jews, we have the law of God. And so we're in a different category. Surely there's some sort of separate arrangement for us. Now, Paul will uphold that, yes, indeed, you are special. Yes, indeed, you had special advantages. You were entrusted with the oracles of God. And they had the law and they had the history and salvation history came to focus in them. So, yes, they are special. But Paul will say, as a Jew, at the end of the day, we're all in the same boat. When it comes to salvation or condemnation, simply being Jewish, simply being religious in any way is not going to save you. So he'll write in chapter 3, verse 9, What then? Are we Jews any better off? He's including himself. Are we better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
And then a few verses later in the famous 323, he summarizes, all have fallen short of the glory of God. So everybody's in the same boat, regardless of your religion. No matter how good you are at being good, you're not good enough. And you will never be able to overcome that massive problem of not being right with God. There's nothing you can do to to earn your way out of that, to perform your way out of that, to uh, have a religion that would get you out of that somehow. If the Jews couldn't do it, friends, who were the people entrusted with the oracles of God, who did have the law, who had the covenant, if they couldn't do it, you better believe that nobody else can do it. This state of being in enmity with God should be terrifying to a person if they allow themselves to think about it. So it's not surprising that most human beings ignore it or deny it. It's too terrible to comprehend. For those of us who have the tendency to lean into religion, to lean into being good, it's disturbing to realize that that won't work either. Our best efforts will fall short. Even if we're great at being good, we're not good enough. So this is the need for justification. And Paul has spent several chapters establishing it. We're not right with God. And something must be done if we are to be right. But now having revealed that, established that, Paul is going to begin to unfold the incredible news at the heart of our salvation. And we see it in Romans 3, verse 21. It has one of my favorite words in the New Testament that comes to us from time to time. It is a gospel word. It is three letters. Does anyone know what it is? But, such a good gospel word, friends, especially for Paul, who loves to describe our state and then bring out the but. Look at verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You're not right with God. You had no hope of ever making yourself right with God. Law and religion and being good couldn't do it, so God did it himself. He manifested a righteousness apart from the law. He revealed a way for us to be right with him apart from being good. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God is able to offer us the free gift, free gift of being right with him. And at the same time, Paul will talk about um, God remains right within himself. He is not going to violate his own justice and holiness in order to do this. That's the depth and the wonder and the majesty of what happened on the cross is that we are justified, we are made right, free gift by faith and God remains holy and right and glorious. Only our God could have done both of those things. That's the wonder of salvation. And that's how we get to sit at this table. That's how we get in. But even after this news comes to us, even after we believe this, we become Christians, I think we just have a hard time with it. It remains a hard concept for us. And we'll have books like Galatians, where where Paul is writing to Christians who have gotten it, but not quite gotten it. And they keep kind of falling back into this, yeah, awesome, thanks. And we'll just add this thing that we're doing to it, right? And works of the law, and that will help. 
We like the part about being right with God and salvation, but there's something in us that won't let go of the idea that we have to work for it, that we have to prove our worth somehow. Go to the average person today, especially Christians, people in churches, and, and ask them, how is it that you get to go to heaven? Even though it's a lot more than that, but that's kind of the phrase that everyone knows. How is it that you get to go to heaven? And you'll probably get some version of an answer, well, if I live a good enough life. And most people will think they're living a good enough life. And Paul says, no, you're not. It's not through works of the law. Salvation is not for those who are good at being good. It is a gift received by faith. Chapter 4, Paul knows his audience. He knows he's writing to a lot of Jewish Christians. And so he's going to go back into their history, and it's our history too, in order to help us get this concept. He takes them back to Abraham, the father of their faith. See, Abraham predated the law of Moses. He predated the Jewish nation or religion. All there was was a guy in a desert and God calling him. And God revealing himself and then making great promises to this man. And how did Abraham respond? He believed God and God credited that to him as righteousness. Not because Abraham was morally perfect or lived a good life, simply because he believed God. He trusted in the promises of God. And even that, if you read the stories, he wasn't perfect at, right? Like us, faith is a struggle. It's a work. It's an ongoing thing to to develop that faith, to maintain that faith. And we see plenty of times where Abraham was saying, well, I got to take matters into my own hands. But overall, his life demonstrated a trust in God and his promises. And that was the means through which God made Abraham right with him. There's something in the human soul that both longs for this to be true and simultaneously resists it. In our pride, we resist justification by faith because at our core, we want to be God. We want to be like God or be God without having to do it God's way. That's what happened in the garden, right? We had it all set up. We were in the image of God. We were enjoying this fellowship with him and the serpent came and he offered this doubt. He offered this thought that there's another way. Don't do it God's way. Do it this way. He's not looking out for you. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. You have to take matters in your own hands. Happens again, Tower of Babel, a few chapters later. Human beings in their arrogance trying to get to heaven through their own efforts. We'll build this tower. We'll build it up into the heavens. We'll make a name for ourselves. We'll establish ourselves. And the irony in the text is God had to come down in order to see it. That's how small it really was. And I wish it was just an ancient problem. But it's all around us today. In some ways, it's gone deeper to the root, to the core. It's not so obvious. But it's all around us like the water we swim in, secular humanism. We don't even realize it because, as Paul said, we have suppressed the truth. But our culture, not just American culture, just the world culture, we're all trying to find the good life apart from God. We're trying to work out all of these big things, economics and sexuality and you name it, anything, personal relationships. We're trying to work out all of that without reference to God. We don't, we don't need him. We don't even believe he exists for some people. If he does exist, privatize him, put him in some little sphere in your home. We don't want him. We can figure out life without him. That's secular humanism. So there's part of us that just resist justification by faith because it would mean that we would have to humble ourselves, that we would have to say, we're defeated, we can't do it, we have to trust in God. 
But there's another part of the human soul that longs for this so desperately, even if it can't put words to it. Because deep down, every human being knows that they can't do it. Deep down, we know that we're not enough. Deep down, we know that we can't find the good life. And we're tired of trying and trying and failing. And the longing we have is to be accepted without performance. To be fully known, all of the stuff, and fully loved. That's the promise of justification by faith. You can be made right with God regardless of what you've done simply by trusting in God's word. And his word to us is a person, Jesus Christ. And what that person did, the life he lived, the kingdom he proclaimed and embodied, his saving death, his glorious resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of God and his pouring out of the Holy Spirit and his second coming. That person, that promise, we trust, we are justified made right with God. I've been reading a book about how the Anglican church came about. And our roots, as Eric loves to remind us, if you've gone to the link class, if you haven't, put in a plug for that. Our roots of the Anglican church don't go back to a guy divorcing his wife, but go back to the earliest centuries after Jesus in the British Isles as Christianity was brought to that area And we had Celtic Christianity. That's our spiritual heritage. That's the roots. But the Anglican church really took shape and developed over a 300-year period from the mid-300s through the mid-600s. And one of the driving ideas of this Reformation in England that brought about the Anglican church was justification by faith. Something was happening. Christians were, were rediscovering the Bible. They were getting it in their own language. They were reading it, and they were aflame with excitement with what they were seeing in it. And one of the doctrines and the teachings and the blessings that came off the page was justification by faith. And it wasn't some theologians got together in some room and said, well, this is an interesting doctrine. Let's include this. No, it was clearly <laughs> taught by the scriptures that they were having access to. And this particular doctrine of justification by faith, it was pastoral. It was setting people free. They went from being afraid of God and fearing, even though they were in the church, fearing of their own condemnation to feeling the warmth of his love and his salvation and security. One of these individuals who was deeply affected was a man named Thomas Cranmer. God had placed him in a position of influence and authority as the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 1500s. And he had a major influence on the development of the Anglican Church, on our theology today, on our worship. But it wasn't theory for him. He was personally liberated by his discovery of justification by faith. Because for him, this doctrine was an expression of God's unconditional love. He came to see how God loved us in this amazing way and it took hold of his heart and it actually changed him from the inside out. How he began to treat people differently, especially his opponents and enemies, which there were many of in that day. In fact, he was so known for his gracious way with people that some years later, William Shakespeare would poke fun at him for how he was gracious with people who were his opponents. Why would Thomas Cranmer act like that? Well, how else will you treat people 
when you realize that the God of all the universe who was your enemy was gracious with you. Unconditional love. Cranmer and others took this teaching of justification by faith and they put it at the center of the English Reformation that brought about the Anglican Church, the church that we're sitting in today. They believed that the only way to morally transform someone, because they cared about that, they cared about moral transformation and right living and right acting, but they believed that the only way to transform an individual, a church, a society, they had very wide goals, was to get them to understand how much God loved them. Do you see how that's a totally different motivation for being good? I quote from the scholar Ashley Knoll of Trinity School of Ministry. He's describing the English Reformation like this. Love would lead the way, and that love would only arise in believers' hearts once they realized God would give them an unmerited, permanent peace with him merely by trusting his promises. So you may not realize it, but you are part of a church that has the unconditional love of God as seen through justification by faith right at our foundation. It shapes everything we do as a church. It shapes the way that we worship. We want people to realize how much God has loved them and then through that realization to be transformed and then take that out into society. Because we trust in his unconditional love expressed through this promise of justification, we're not afraid to come into the presence of a holy and mighty God and to be totally vulnerable before him. That's why we begin our worship services the way we do, with this old, old prayer called the Collect for Purity. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all our desires are known, from you no secrets are hidden. Don't we spend most of our time hiding from each other and hiding things from ourselves? We don't want to see the nasty things, the thoughts we had, the things we did. Well, we come before God and we say, all the secrets are known, all the desires are known, all the thoughts are known. And we're safe, we can do that with you. And then we plead with him. Would you cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit? We want to be cleansed. We want to be set free again by your love so that we can perfectly love you. We know you love us. We want to perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Do you see how the heart is central? The love for God is central? Do you see how vulnerable we're making ourselves before the holy God? The only reason we're able to do that is because God has given himself to us in love through this beautiful revelation of justification by faith. So central was this teaching to Cranmer and to others that they would die for it. Even though they were killed by other Christians, it is fair to call them martyrs because the belief for which they were killed was at the heart of the gospel. We are sinners. We cannot help ourselves. So God, in his infinite love, made a way, the only way, through Jesus Christ. Friends, it is Trinity Sunday, and there is much to celebrate. We get in. We get into the life and the love and the glory of the Trinity now and forever. But wonder of wonders, the way that God has revealed that is through this amazing teaching, justification by faith, this gift that comes to us. The church has held on to it. The church has suffered for it. 
but it tells us of the life and the freedom that we have to get to enjoy this eternal destiny at that table with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you got a hold of the incredible mind and the heart of the Apostle Paul, that you took him from darkness to light and that you allowed him and led him and inspired him to write down this incredible letter of the Romans that we might still know today and hold on to this incredible revelation of your love. We thank you for people like Thomas Cranmer and others down through the centuries who have brought us back and shown us that teaching again that we might stand in awe of your glory and your grace, both now and forever. For those here today who, who don't know this, who haven't received this, who haven't put their faith in your promise, I pray that by the Holy Spirit in this moment, you would convict them and lead them to an understanding of the freedom that you offer them in Jesus Christ. And for us who know this and who've walked with you, but we, we stray from it, Lord, and we get afraid of you, and we, when we run away from you, Lord, would you, would you lead us back to the foot of the cross and let us receive your love afresh and your security. We bless you, we praise you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen.